This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. All right, well, is this okay? Can everyone see and hear clearly enough? Great. Great, we'll just make sure this slide's working. Great. Well, a few years ago, my older brother Luke and his friend Dennis were walking the dogs, uh, Bailey and uh, Chico, near a walk trail in the Perth Hills. And Bailey picked up the scent of something. She snuck off. And moments later, they heard a woman screaming uh, and obviously distressed. And so they've panicked and gone to check it out. Uh, Bailey had killed a few of her chickens. Uh, the woman was distraught. Uh, my brother Luke tried to console her. To, you know, he assured her, look, it's okay, we're going to re- replace the chickens. You know, what are they, you know, 50 bucks or whatever. And this lady was devastated because, you know, they were hand-raised chickens. Now, back when we heard this story, we, I didn't really think it was much of a big deal. I kind of thought this lady was overreacting. I was like, come on, they're chickens. Uh, but now I've learned a few things now that I have chickens. Uh, maybe I should have answered Peter's question a bit better. I have a dog and a, a few chickens. Uh, there's my chickens, there's three of them. Uh, and now that I, I have these chickens, I've learned that something's value isn't determined just by the dollars attached to it, but by the love that someone has for it. See, chickens didn't really have much value to me before I had chickens myself as pets, but now that I do, I'd go postal if some random's dog uh, got off their lead into my yard and killed them. And this passage is going to make us think about the way we use this word love. So we say, you know, we love chickens and we say that we, we love McDonald's. I know I do. Uh, you know, it's even on our packaging, right? Uh, and I got to know this chapter pretty well, this famous love chapter. It's often used in wedding sermons whenever you're speaking about love. 1 Corinthians 13 is the one that comes to mind. I got to know it pretty well because I had to do a Greek exegesis unit at Theological College And whenever you do a Greek exegesis unit and they give you a bit of a heads up on what chapters you're going to have to translate, you memorize the English so that when you get into the exam, you don't have to do the translation on the fly. Uh, If anyone needs a good literal translation for exam memorization, New American Standard is usually a pretty safe bet. Uh, So it was a little bit of a happy surprise that Erica said that we'd be thinking about this chapter this week in church. Uh, I've enjoyed the time in it. And during the week, I told a lady that I'd be coming here to speak, and she said, oh, um, St. Mark's, that's, uh, that's the church where Elton John first got married in, in 1984. And, uh, and in honour of the great man, and also in honour of the new Lion King film coming out surely, uh, I'd just like to ratchet up the cheese factor of this sermon and start by asking you a bit of a question. You might see where I'm going with this. I want to ask, can you feel the love tonight? <laughs> I told you I was ratcheting up the cheese. But seriously, seriously, that is what this chapter ought to make us ask ourselves. Uh, Can we have a palpable sense of love in the way the church uh, treats one another? And so just a bit of a background, I'm sure you're familiar. Uh, The Corinthians had had written to Paul and prompted this letter because they had some questions and they had some issues they wanted to clarify. And this passage on love that we're looking at tonight it falls squarely in the middle of Paul's discussion on spiritual gifts. And so the very uh, introduction that's uh, at the end of chapter 12, but I think it's really attached to 13, Paul says, I'm going to tell you about the most excellent way. 
Uh, the most excellent way here, the organizing principle that should guide the way you serve, that should guide the way you use your gifts. And Paul's trying to help us see that these gifts aren't unimportant, they're significant. Uh, but the thing that matters more, the thing that should undergird everything and every person uh, is love. And so there are different distributions of gifts. Uh, people even have different uh, roles in serving. Uh, they have different works to perform. Uh, but it's the same spirit that gives these gifts. Uh, it's the same Lord that people are serving. And it's the same God that we're working for. So we all have different gifts. We all have different service. But all of us are called to love one another. So uh, to quote Michael Jensen, as I did my homework, the gifts point to Jesus as Lord, and they work for the common good of the community. It matters less what they are and more what they're for. So chapter 13 is going to make the Corinthians, and I think us, consider how we use our, our gifts and abilities for the sake of others. So uh, on this text, verse 1 to 3, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give, all away, if I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And so what we see in verses 1 to 3 are these things itemize, uh, all gifts, used as examples to make the point that without love, even the greatest of these gifts remains worthless. Uh, so I come from an engineering background. I'm sure there's one or two uh, mathematics nerds around you, so this will help you. Paul uses a bit of a programming or computer code language. He, he makes this phrase seven times. He says, if I do or I have this particular gift, right, but... I don't have love, then I am why. And he repeats this seven times to drive home this point to show that if a gift is not inspired by love for other church members, then it's futile. Uh, it actually fails to build up the church. It fails to honour God. So the first gift is, is speaking in you know, tongues of men and angels. Now, whatever this gift means, uh, people do take a range of different perspectives on it. Uh, listen to Michael's sermon, so uh, we'll go with it being uh, ecstatic and angelic speech that isn't read readily understandable to people unless someone translates. Then all of that noise, all of the words that get spoken, no matter what language it's in, they become useless. They're like a clanging cymbal. See, it would be the same for the listener if there were gongs or clanging cymbals going off. See, uh, this issue of speaking as tongues is one that historically has, has got a lot of heat with churches. And usually when I hear people objecting to tongues being used or, or the way they're being used, is that people will often say that the churches that speak in tongues, they never do it right. Uh, it's usually to do with the practice of how many people are speaking in tongues or whether uh, there's interpreters or things like that. Uh, they're either disorderly or so many different objections. Now, while those things are legitimate to talk about, Paul addresses some of those in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, Paul's biggest problem 
The biggest problem that he sees is an exercising of gifts is that it can be done without love. It can be done for self-seeking, self-promoting reasons. It can be done in selfish ways. And therefore, it's worth nothing and it's not worth hearing. But it's not just tongues that's not worth hearing if it's not undergirded by love. It's the same you can see in verse 2 with prophecy. It's the same with someone who has this great knowledge of mysteries. It's the same with this special kind of knowledge and faith that can move mountains, which I suspect is echoing Jesus' words of this, this faith uh, that can be used to, to do the impossible. right? But these things are all meant to strengthen and comfort the church under trial. And so without love, it makes someone nothing. And the thing I find fascinating is, if you think about the context of this letter, there's one of two possibilities. Either the Corinthians had written to Paul to prove themselves right, so the person writing in the congregation, or to prove someone else in the congregation wrong. And the fascinating thing is, Paul doesn't get sucked into their game where he goes, yeah, these guys are right, these guys are wrong. Everyone ends up kind of copying a hiding. Everyone gets a correction. So a little while ago, uh, one of my uh, family friends is in the US. Uh, he was having some trouble with his kids. And uh, the big trouble his, his wife was having was that the, the mum uh, would go to smack the, the youngest daughter, the little girl, for you know, behaving you know, you know, poorly. But the older boy would run in the way and he'd stand in the way and go, no, 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 mum, don't smack her, smack me instead. And so she'd go, oh, geez, I don't know what to do. And so she'd go, she'd say to the husband, she would end up doing nothing. And she'd say to the husband, what should I do in that situation? And the husband goes, smack him. <laughs> so they, you know, okay. So the next time the situation comes around, little girl's playing up, mum goes to give her a smack, little boy runs in the way. No, no, don't smack her, smack me instead. The, the mum goes, all right. And the little boy's like, oh, kind of walks off a little bit upset, a little sore bottom. Anyway. Next time the little girl's arcing up, what do you think happened? The little girl's arcing up, catches the mum's attention. The little boy stands up and goes, she's over there. (laughs) Turncoat straight away. See, just like this loyal little brother, self-love can very easily and very quickly win out. We can feign kind of noble resistance, uh, noble sacrificial service, But as soon as it actually starts to cost us, as soon as we actually start to feel the smack on our own backside, then it's easy to turn. And so Paul is, I think, giving us an example of applying Jesus' command to love one another. So there should be a question that that rises in our minds as we're reading this chapter, and I'm sure would would have risen in the minds of the Corinthians and it's, is a gift from the Spirit without love worth anything? Is it worth exercising? What would you say to that? Is a gift from the Spirit without love worth exercising? Well, it's not. And so Paul escalates going, it's not just the lower gifts like tongues, but even these amazing noble gifts that are edifying for even more people If they're not done with love, it's no use. So he even says in verse 3, you can give everything for Jesus. You can deliver your body up to the flames. So you can even give your life in such devotion to your Lord. 
But if your devotion to your brothers and sisters isn't there to match, you've got a problem. See, Christianity is not just vertical. It's not just me and God. We know God for ourselves, but we do not know God by ourselves. So just think of the Lord's Prayer. How does it start? It doesn't start my Father in heaven. It starts our Father in heaven. We're saved as part of a a body. Now, I'm aware that we're an Anglican church in Sydney, so I do apologise for not quoting Philip Jensen earlier. But he's got a great way of making sense of this passage. He says it like this. The unspiritual say, I love to use my gifts. The spiritual person says, I use my gifts to love others. I'll say that again. The unspiritual person says, I love to use my gifts. I love playing music. I love preparing meals because everyone tells me how much they appreciate it. I love speaking up the front. But the spiritual person says, no, no, I use my gifts to love others. And there is a world of difference between those two motivations. It's actually quite subtle, but it's massive. If we use our gifts in a way that hurts or hinders others, we're actually undermining the gospel we're meant to be promoting. If we use our talents in a way that makes us look good but does a disservice to others, we're hurting the gospel we're meant to be promoting. And so I think this is an example of an apostle applying Jesus' teaching from John 13, 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples. See, I'm not sure John, uh, Paul would have been able to reference this part of uh, John 13. Uh, it's still a few decades off being written. But it's already being applied in the Christian communities. It's already being shown that Jesus gave this this command, and Christians are meant to take it seriously, and we're meant to apply it. But the reason why I just want to stop for a minute and, 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 and dig into this is what Jesus says in John 13 is really profound, and it, he calls it a new command. See, we had that brilliant reading from Matthew 22 tonight, and it's a summary of the old law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, Soul, mind, and strength, right? We, we know that from Deuteronomy, right? Hero Israel. Lord, so there's the first part. Love God. What's the second part of the law, Jesus says in Matthew 22? Well, we get it from the end of Leviticus. See there at the end of that verse, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so this is where we're going to do a bit of analysis. Jesus says, I'm giving you a new command to love one another. And then he's also summarized the law as loving God and loving others. So how in the world is this a new command? He qualifies it. You can can see it there in that part of John. We are to love one another as he has loved us. The reason why that's new is because it's different. Previously, our responsibility was to love our neighbour as ourselves, but now we're to love one another. Other Christians in the church we're called to be part of, as Jesus loved us, that's actually a higher degree. That's a higher calling than loving your neighbour as yourself. 
Because that means to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. But Jesus loved us more than he loved himself. He personally sacrificed for our sake. And I think that's the clue clue to understanding what Christian love should look like in a church. The way that we love each other shouldn't just be convenient. Oh, yeah, that's I'm doing for them what they would do for me, that kind of standard neutral phrase, which is good and right. The world would be way better if we actually obeyed that. But Jesus goes even further and he ratchets this up and he gives a new command of loving each other in a self-sacrificial, intense way. So as an example, people will use phrases of love like, you know, saying, I I love chickens. All right, I use those chickens at the beginning. So you get people saying things like, I love chickens. I love this meme. You've got this chicken being like, really? Because that love is costing me something. It's not a self-sacrificial love. I've told you about my wife. We love KFC. So I feel like I need to slip this in in the PowerPoint just to honour that she's back at home, probably in KFC right now, to be honest. She's 38 weeks pregnant, um, and that would be fair. But the reason why I show this is to show that when when we say we love something, it's actually undermined if we're not willing to sacrifice for it. If we're willing to sacrifice the thing we say we love for our own purposes, that's a a self-motivated, self-centered kind of love. And that is not the kind of love that Christians are meant to have for each other. And so my hunch is that the extent to which we actually believe that love matters more than gifting will be evident by the way we honor people. Here's what I mean by that. Do Do we praise and honor and big up those people who have those impressive gifts? Or do we appreciate and, and even try to emulate people uh, who, who love other well and don't get a lot of praise for it? So it's the goal that you would have when someone visits your church or gets to know you as a congregation. Is your goal that they would say, man, those musicians are really gifted. And that's a good thing to be said. I thought it myself as I was sitting there tonight. I thought, man, this is great. Or, or is your goal that someone coming would think, Michael Jensen is a really insightful, you know, really uh, relevant speaker. And that's a good thing to be said. I bet that's true and that's good. But the organizing principle that, that we want to, in one sense, radiate is that someone would hang out enough with you guys that they would say, God must be at work in these people because despite their differences and even in spite of their issues, they still love each other. They don't have much reason to, but they do. That should be one of the things that defined us. Uh, There's a story told of a gentleman called Harry Winston, who was one of the world's uh, greatest jewel merchants. And one day he watched one of his salesmen show this beautiful diamond to this rich Dutch merchant, and the customer listened thoughtfully, and it was an amazing description And he eventually turned away and he said to the salesman, look, it's a wonderful stone, but it's not exactly what I'm after. And uh, Winston stopped the customer on his way out and he said, hey, do you mind if I just show you this diamond one more time? And the merchant agreed. He had a bit of time. And so Winston took the, the stone in hand and he didn't repeat anything the salesman had said. He simply talked about the gem as an object of beauty. He spoke about his affair, how, how much he thought of it. And abruptly, the customer changed his mind and he bought the diamond. And uh, while he was waiting for the diamond to be kind of wrapped up and presented, he turned to Winston and he said, 
why did I buy it so willingly from you when I had no difficulty in saying no to your salesman? And Winston answered, look, that salesman is one of the best men in the business. He knows diamonds, but I love them. And that should be one of the differences in the way that we treat or speak about others. It's not that just that we, we know or that we tolerate or that we spend time with each other, but we really love each other, like genuinely care. And so the next few verses show us a bit more about what this love will look like. And the reason why this is so helpful is because we're really good at self-justifying. We are phenomenal at self-justifying. We've been doing this our entire lives. We're so good at it, we don't even know what we're doing. It's our default position. And so this love gets described here in verses 4 to 7. Right. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The reason why I think this piece of scripture is so helpful is because there are loads of times when we say that we're loving others uh, when we're really just loving ourselves. Uh, love, this passage says, starts by doing two things. It's patient and it's kind. So there are some things that love will, will, will actively be doing. And then there's eight negative attitudes that do not come from love. And so if you want to know if you're loving others well, this is a kind of spiritual litmus test to actually see uh, whether you're being consistent. So love does not envy or boast. I've already failed when I think of the way I think about others in my church family. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Verse 6, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. That verse, that, that last one, just imagine if, that, if we live that out. If the world stopped rejoicing at wrongdoing. Like gossip would be dead. There'd be no more trash talk, there'd be no more dragging others down because it doesn't make us happy to see others struggling or suffering or doing the wrong thing. It actually grieves us. And so I just want to riff on one of these for a second, that love is not self-seeking, because I reckon that's going to hit us pretty hard as, um, as comfortable Westerners in 21st century Australia. Uh, I heard a story from a pastor about a lady who'd been serving in his congregation for a number of years. She'd been serving morning tea for years, you know, one of the, the faithful stalwarts. And after a while, she stopped serving, and uh, then she stopped coming to church. And the pastor was a bit confused and he, he caught up with her and he asked her you know how she was going and and where she'd been why she stopped coming to church and this was her response I served for years and no one ever thanked me now that's terrible isn't it but it actually revealed why she was serving she was serving because she wanted the thanks and the appreciation of others. And because she didn't get it, she pulled the pin. 
Now, I'm not saying that it's okay that she wasn't thanked. She should have been. But my question is, how do you keep going when your service is a thankless task? If anything other than love is the motor underneath you, you won't be able to. If the praise and appreciation of people is the thing that gets you to church or to spending time with others, it won't be enough. Because the human heart needs more and more and more and more and more. And so one of the biggest dangers for my heart, and I suspect your heart, because we've got the same hearts that are inclined towards self, is that we use this list as a bit of a stick on others. So I don't know if there's married people here or parents here or someone in a relationship that's not going well or whatever it is. But we read this list and then we go, yeah, that's my spouse. But actually, the first thing this is meant to make us do is examine ourselves, examine our own hearts and go, man, I am so often self-seeking in, my, in the way that I act. I am so often proud of what I've done. No one's thanked me. And so the contrast with these eight attitudes that, that love doesn't do are four positive expressions of love in verse 7. Love bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so my question for you, and we're going to do a bit of analysis, is how's this going for you with your church family? How, how's this loving others in a selfless, sacrificial way going? And so we're going to do a bit of a love test. It's not a dating game, so don't get too excited uh, for any of the singles here. Uh, and we're called to do this. Here's what we're going to do. Try and insert your own name for love in 1 Corinthians 13. Okay? So you're sitting here looking at that list. Try and put your own name in that blank space and see how far you get. I'll use myself as an example. Jordan is patient. Jordan is kind. I can't even keep going because I already know that this is not as true of me as it's, I'm called, as it's called, as I'm called, as it's called to be, as it should be. Now here's where hope comes in. Because if we just did this diagnosis, we'd be a little bit despairing, but here's where I think we find hope. Try and insert Jesus' name into that list. And it works. It fits perfectly. Jesus is patient and kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. Jesus is not proud. See, this kind of love that Christians talk about and that we should be concerned about, it's not something that we self-generate. It's actually not something we produce by trying harder and thinking about more. It's actually a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that will bubble up naturally as the Spirit is at work in us, challenging and refining us. And so my question is, do we mostly operate out of convenience or do we mostly operate out of what's going to make us look good? 
Or do we stop and think, hang on, how's this going to be for someone else? So my question is, when was the last time you thought, oh man, I'm not feel, I just don't feel like going to church tonight. I'm really tired. I've got a big week. You know, I, I could, I really need to finish this season of suits before I start the work week. I need a bit of time watching Netflix. I, I don't know what it is for you, but when was the last time you thought, hang on, no, no, I'm going to go because those people need me. They'll be encouraged by my being there. See, the thing that we know about love as Christians from Jesus as a model is that love costs. Uh, it costs Jesus. It costs Paul with the Corinthians. But I reckon if you could ask them, was it worth it? They'd say, absolutely. Absolutely worth it. And it's worth it because love never fails and love never ends. And this is how we're going to tie it off. As for prophecies, they pass away. As for tongues, they cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. See, these, these verses contrast this age that we're living in now with the age to come. And it shows that, look, these gifts have a purpose. Prophecy and tongues and special knowledge, they have their purpose, but once their purpose has been fulfilled, they'll be done away with. Uh, but love, you never do away with it. This is not just one gift or one service amongst many for Christians. This is the ethic that undergirds the whole Christian life. It's actually it's part of God's nature and character so much that God is even called love. Now, these verses have had loads of debate about them, what they mean, what it means when the partial comes back, but we're not going to go into it for time's sake. Uh, all I'll say is that I believe with the majority of scholars that it's saying that this is Jesus' return, uh, that these gifts actually do still have a place while we await Jesus' return. But their purpose, once fulfilled, once he returns, um, it means that they're no longer needed. But love is always needed. And so Paul is trying to show this analogy. So look, when I was a child, I, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I even reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. See, faith, hope and love, verse 13 says, they will endure throughout all eternity. And people might think, well, what on earth, why do we need faith and why do we need hope when Jesus returns? And that's a good question. And the best way I heard it put was by Craig Blomberg, where he says, it makes sense if faith is taken as belief in Jesus and faithful service to him. That continues. Especially when you understand the word faith is just the word trust. So it's not like you ever stop trusting Jesus even once you meet him. <clears throat> in fact, the more you know him, the more you trust him. So in one sense, faith will increase. Hope is this expectant anticipation of good things. And that keeps going when we're with Christ and the new creation. And, and love as is the greatest because it's most tied to God's character. And so I want to finish with this amazing little illustration, I think it's amazing, from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, uh, Once upon a time in an old kingdom, there was a gardener who had this uh, you know, uh, productive garden and he got this enormous carrot and he loved his king. 
And so he bought this king this carrot just as a gift. He didn't have to give it to him. He just loved his king. So he goes to the king and he gives him this king. And the king was quite taken aback by this gesture from this, this peasant farmer. And he says to the farmer, he's, the king says, because you've showed me such favor and honor, I'm going to enlarge your fields. And everyone was shocked. And there was a noble in the king's court who watched this and he thought, wow, just imagine if I don't bring in the king a carrot, but imagine what the king will do for me if I bring him a mighty steed. And so the following day, the nobleman brings this king, this steed, this horse, and he says, I so love you, king. I want you to have this steed. And the king receives it and sends him on his way. And the nobleman leaves and he's a little bit confused. And the king calls him back and he says, why are you confused? He said, the gardener's gift was a gift of love. But you, you have given this horse not to me, but to yourself. He gave me the carrot, but you have given yourself the horse. So my question is, are you like that? Do you only give when it either makes you look good or it's got a good chance of getting you something back? Or do you give and serve and operate in such a way that you do it for the love of others with no hope of how it's going to make you look or how it's going to return? John Stott says, the cross is the blazing fire against which our love is kindled. And the reason why is this. When you look at the cross, people see, I guess, different things to different extent. But what we see for sure, even, even with mixed knowledge, is that there is great forgiveness at the cross. And in Matthew 18, Jesus says this amazing phrase. He says, those who are forgiven little love little. But those who are forgiven lots love lots. And I know that for my own heart, if I'm going to love others better, I need to be really aware and believing that I have been forgiven an enormous debt. Because when I'm aware of just how much I'm for, I've been forgiven, I'm, I'm more willing to do that for others. And I'm more willing to, to love them because I no longer have to prove my own worth. It's given to me by Christ. And so as we finish... My question for you is, do you only serve or do you only do things when it makes you look good or that it's self-promotion? Or do you do it for the sake of others? I'll quickly pray for us and then you have a moment for reflection, I suppose. Our dear Heavenly Father, we so often live with mixed motives. And that's hard and it can be depressing. But it's not without hope because we know that Christ died for us on the cross and he dealt with our sin and he's given us a new spirit that can generate and produce love in us. And not just love for you, but love for others. And so I pray for every person here that they would continually be refined by the fire of the cross, making them aware of how much they've been forgiven so that they can love others, they can forgive others 
and that you would be honoured, that you would be glorified in this church. We pray all this for your sake. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.